Do you know the public house with the longest name? Well, have a guess and Katie Boyle will give you the answer at the end of this happy-go-lucky mixture of music and fun. Katarina! Welcome to this week's When There Was Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. We're back with part four of our look at Lord Reese BBC set. A very big month for the Beatles. They had just gone through Paul's birthday and all of the Bob Waller stuff. And Ringo's birthday. <laughs> the BBC thought Ringo's birthday had passed. Peace and love. Peace and love. They had written and then five days later recorded She Loves You. At the beginning of July 1963. Right. Which they kept in the can for a little while. It had to have been a great feeling to know that you had a song like She Loves You waiting to go. (laughs) The Please Please Me album had been released in March, and it was creeping up the charts. During this month, Please Please Me would hit number one on the album charts in the UK. So right now, we're talking From Me to You being the... The current single, they were to release an EP during this time, which is actually mentioned, and they play a song off the EP during these radio shows. And also during this month, as we get to it, they were to start sessions for With the Beatles. Yes. It's interesting to me that they kind of used some of these radio sessions as a chance to run through songs that they were going to cut for With the Beatles. They'll run through money and... Roll over Beethoven until there was you. And it also shows you what they didn't choose to put on the album for one reason or another. Yeah, they might have been considering these other songs, but they didn't make it. There really aren't a whole lot of repeats. This and the next disc I would classify as the golden era of the Beatles radio shows. The rest of the Pop Goes the Beatles series. We would get a bunch of stuff. Some of it they played in Hamburg, but even some of this they hadn't even played in Hamburg. Right, and some of these songs were relatively new on the charts, so they weren't reaching way back in the 50s to grab songs, although there were some older songs. There were also some newer ones. Although there's a lot of Chuck Berry in there. They like Chuck Berry. As we go through these show by show, it surprises me that there really was that much Chuck Berry, particularly as opposed to other artists. I mean, Arthur Alexander probably comes second. Right. The rest of the artists, which they loved, they would play a song here and there, and that's about it. Right. And what we're talking about 
really is John's choices of music. I mean, he was the big Arthur Alexander fan, and he was the big Chuck Berry fan. Paul was a little bit more... Little Richard. And Universal. He'd sing Marlena Dietrich. And <laughs> they also seem to aim a little bit more towards the countryside on these radio shows, I think. Yeah. Country definitely had an impact on them. And John's early writing, you know, I don't want to spoil the party and things like that. He could lean to country sometimes. Where we left off was with the fourth pop of the Beatles. The BBC decided to pick up their option. There would be an 11 more pop go the Beatles shows. There was a good portion of this music that was not that familiar to British audiences. And so there was the phenomenon of the Beatles really introducing a lot of this music to English kids. The first four shows, the guests were foisted on them. It looks from here that they're starting to at least have a say in who's going to be on the show with them. The acts here are a lot more contemporary, a lot more cooler, if you will. And we're going to get some bands who had guys who would go on to have pretty big careers, as a matter of fact. The first show on this disc was not a pop good, The Beatles. It was a return to Saturday Club. Rehearsed beginning at 2.30, recorded from 5.30 to 6.30 on June the 24th, and then aired that Saturday, June the 29th at 10 a.m. They started that Saturday Club show with I Gotta Find My Baby. This is the second time that they played that on the Beeb, Chuck Berry song. One of my early favorite secret finds in that the harmonica lead in this song is a couple of slight changes the harmonica lead they used for little child John's vocal, he's not quite all the way into it, but or he just wasn't quite ready to do the rock voice all the way, but it's good. This is a great R&B tune. Did a great job on it, I thought. Yeah, it may be that he's trying to do more R&B than rock vocal here. He didn't go all the way into the twist and shout levels, but he's done a little bit more grit on some of his other Chuck Berry vocals. Fair enough. This is a little bit smoother, I think. But I mean, I think it fits. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. It's a good version of the tune. Right, everybody plays it really well. It's a very Beatles version of the tune. It would have fit like this very well on Meet the Beatles. Yeah, I I agree. Or with the Beatles. (laughs) Well, if it's on Meet the Beatles, it could have been on either album. Yeah, Dave Dexter would have taken this off of Meet the Beatles, though. He would have stuck it on the second album. (laughs) This is true. The second album is the rock and roll album. All right, we get a new host. We haven't had Rodney Burke in here yet. This is the first time we get him. Yeah, I don't have much to say for him. Well, I mean, again, I think he's probably a little bit better than Lee Peters was. Well, they're they're both very old school. His first intro includes another mention of Harry in his box. Among the many requests for anything by the Beatles this week, quite a few with uh, rather 
clever drawings of the boys on them. I've got one here, uh, uh, John. I wonder if you'd read this for us. This is from Madeline and Margaret of Sheffield, Leeds and Manchester. Quick travellers. It's also for Harry and his box. I thought Jerry had got that. And John decides to throw some of his nonsense like from his book. Yeah, I think that's Lennon just being like, shut the... <laughs> shut the F up. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, this is just nonsense. I know a lot of people have asked us this, but the truth about Harry and his box is that Freddie Pardon often the park he walked through, don't <laughs> we? You know what I mean? Of course, yes, I understand now. Well, having cleared that up, what uh, number would you like to do? Well, we'd like to do Chuck Berry's Memphis, Tennessee. Good old Harry. The second song they play is Memphis. This is the third time they played it on the beam. It's a funny tune because it's not really an intense Chuck Berry song. The story's interesting, but, you know, it's just not as rocking as they normally do. I think John liked the twist at the end, that he's not actually singing about his woman, his wife or girlfriend, that he's singing about his daughter. Yeah, the story's interesting. Although John apparently never quite managed to figure out the lyrics. He referring to Small Coat took the message. She would not leave a number, but I know who place to call. Small Coat took the message and he wrote it on the wall. And the lyrics are My Uncle Took the Message. She could not leave a number, but I know who place to call. So I guess John just never quite got what Chuck was singing there. And granted, you listen to the record, it is pretty difficult to get what John's saying, especially if you're not used to the accent. Maybe that was one of those records that they would run into NEMS and just listen to it in the listening booth and wouldn't buy it. So you only had a small amount of time to learn it. Although small coat, what's a small coat? Small coat on a flaming pie. One thing I want to say about this set, the recordings sound great. Now, of course, we're getting to the point where we're actually getting to BBC Masters. They still exist for a lot of these shows. And the technology is such that you can really clean things up. We've heard Paul talking about how the BBC engineers kind of got what they were trying to do. And you can hear that. Yes. The next song, Money, is the best version of it, I think. It beats the George Martin version hands down because the excitement is there on the tape. And the guitars are punchy, and Lennon has got his rasp cranked up to 10. It's a great version. Ringo is just having so much fun on the drums there. Yeah, I think this is more or less what it would have sounded like in Hamburg. Yeah, depending on the PA. comments from rodney burke 
drawings and illustrations that people sent in to them at the BBC. George, I think we'll have you read this one. Will you do that? Yeah. This is for two art students studying at West Hartlepool High School for Girls. One is Joan Jagger, 16 Kirkstone Grove, and the other, Kathleen Rollo, 77 Collingwood Road, Thank West Hartlepool. Very much. Well, now, what's the number that we're going to hear for these two uh, and everybody else? He makes a point of pronouncing each word, enunciating it very clearly. Tilda was you. This song got mentioned, I believe, in the Frida Kelly movie about the spotlight hitting it. Was it at the Empire? This was Paul at his panty-dropping best. <laughs> the doe eyes, the Dirk McQuickly thing. Yeah, and there was music. It's a pretty wow thing. This was a song that they would record for with the Beatles in just a couple of weeks. And coincidentally is the song that John Lennon famously told Brian to mind his own business. You count the money, we'll take care of the music. As far as this recording goes, it's very good. It's very clean. Paul's vocal seems ever so slightly muffled in the first verse. I don't know if they were having mic problems or what. Could be. Not hugely, just, just slightly. There were birds in the sky, but I never saw them winging. No, I never saw them at all till there was you. There was music and wonderful roses. They tell me in sweet fragrant meadows of dawn and you. You can hear every bit of Ringo's stick work on this version of the song. Yeah, I, I've written down several times listening to this that Ringo is recorded well and plays well on these recordings. He really shines several times. And Ringo actually comments on that. You know, I get excited listening to them because, you know, it is the band I was in and you tend to forget that we were a working band. Not just these sessions but the bbc sessions in general and he talks about that he thinks he was playing particularly well and that the whole band was and there's no doubt about that yeah they were hot at this point this is probably the pinnacle it starts to get to be a little bit more work after this as we go on to the further bbc sessions you know, once we get past this, this, it's not that they're not good versions of songs, but it seems to be a little bit more work after that. Yeah, I think that their attention went to their own songs. This was really the time when they were becoming really good songwriters. And George Martin was certainly working with them and telling them what made a really good pop record and what makes a hit. They were soaking it all up. And I think their attention really went to their own music rather than churning out copy tunes. They'll do some great copy tunes. They've still got to record Please Mr. Postman. And I mean, there's still some great versions. They got to fill the albums. There's With the Beatles, which will have a bunch of copy music. And there's Beatles for Sale, which will have a bunch of copy music. But I think all their great ones are the early songs. Later on, they were a little tired of them, I think. By the time they got to doing Dizzy Miss Lizzie on help, we just need this because if you got troubles, it didn't work. Yeah. 
And now some more music from the Beatles. A big one from me to you, for which there's a stack of requests. Paul, we've time for, I think, a couple of quick ones. Would you do this one? Yeah, this is for Pete Robinson of 40 King Edward Avenue, Rainham in Essex. It's his 21st today. It's also for Mavis, Tony, Pam, Alan, Rose, Mick, Christine, Pat, Anne, Beryl, Bob and Christine. Have you done? Yeah. Right. A quick dedication also to Winifred Stebbings of 16 Woodhead Road, Walkergate, Newcastle-on-Tyne. Here we go from me to you. I really like the fact that the harmonica is back. Some of the other BBC sessions that we had on the other discs, they didn't bring the harmonica with right. them. Here on a lot of these shows, the harmonica is there. The last number that they do on this show is a roll over Beethoven. George, his vocal is tremendous. I was annoyed that they did a voiceover, the classic Chuck Berry intro. He's talking over the Beatles. And classic lovers to the last, the boys say, roll over Beethoven. I wonder whether those raw tapes still exist. Probably not. There's no way we could get a clean version of that intro somewhere. I mean, it didn't air like that. It would have to come off of the raw BBC tapes, right. which likely don't exist anymore. But as far as the rest of the recording, this time the drums are a bit to the back, but the bass is really to the fore. You can hear Paul playing very clearly. Yeah, it's a good version. George goes a little bit wild in the solo. He, he has a little bit of that Marty McFly thing. <laughs> right. You know, he didn't do on the studio version. And then, then John and George do some harmony in, during the final verse. That's also really very nice. Buried a little bit in the background. There's a woo going on. They're having lots of fun there. A couple days later, on July the 2nd, they recorded the fifth edition of Pop Go the Beatles, which would go out a couple weeks later on July the 16th. So there was this Saturday club in between, and then back to the Beatles in their regular weekly spot. The boys were working hard at this point. Well, not nearly as hard as they would be working later in the month here. I got to stick this with the whole thing. I mean, it's the whole experience. You look at the month of July. Yeah. Well, you know, this month is just kind of ridiculous. You got to stop. You're going to kill us. <laughs> we're still not to Ringo's 23rd birthday yet. The Beatles have had a couple of weeks rest, and me... Well, my name's Rodney Burke, and I never read. Rodney Burke is back. The guests for this show, like I had mentioned, you know, it seemed that they had at least a little bit more of a voice than the guests. Duffy Power was on the show with them. You know, he was at least a rocker, R&B type guy. He'd come out of the Larry Parnes stable. Yeah. So the Beatles were familiar with him. But I don't know how much they had to do with the choosing of the guests. 
I don't know. If it wasn't them, at least whoever it was at the BBC was looking at it and going, well, you know, maybe we'd be better off by having someone who's a little bit more contemporary than the various folk trios they'd been having through the first four episodes of Pop Go the Beatles. But, you know, who knows really how that decision was made for all we know. It could have been fans writing in going, who the heck is that? Who is the Carl Denver trio? Yeah, it could have been that too. And well, we'll get to it because we actually do get a couple of Duffy Power tunes here in this show. Unlike the first disc, it's not greenbacks and it does not really disrupt the flow that much. It's still 63. And so pop music is still centered around Cliff Richards and and the Larry Parnes crew. Duffy Power actually managed to escape from Larry Parnes. He started out with them and Larry Parnes named him. The name Power is yet again one of those Larry Parnes. I'm going to rename all of my stars. After an attribute of fury and those names. Power and eager and poor Johnny Gentle, huh? We've already gone through everything good, so you'll just be gentle. And you're going to do nothing but ballads. (laughs) It's a bomb set. <laughs> and you're going to go to Scotland. Roddy Burke has also taken over as host of Pop Go the Beatles. He, he tells us that the show will air every Tuesday at 5, right through the summer. You know where to be at 5 o'clock on Tuesday. <laughs> same bat time, same bat channel. The first song on this show is one of my favorite BBC songs. It's, it's Paul doing That's All Right Mama. He manages to both sound like Elvis and sound like himself. It's funny because I was listening through all these, and I thought, you know, Paul had the ability to sound like Elvis. He had the ability to sound like Little Richard. And then the Everly Brothers with John. But John's voice was like John. He had a voice that's like you can't assign what he did to any particular singer like that's the guy who really influenced him because he just had the sound that was uniquely him it's a little bit buddy holly and it's a little bit elvis i think that's kind of where it came from and you can hear both of those at least somewhat in john's voice yeah but you're right it didn't sound like either of them right whereas i mean paul was kind of chameleon like you know he had his own voice or at least he developed his own singing style but when he wanted to, he could make his voice sound like just about anybody he wanted, anybody out there. Truly, he could be that guy who could sing a song from The Music Man, Till There Was You, and make it really sweet. And then he could sing Long Tall Sally. And he really had the ability to go around in his voice. And he had that voice when he could do Oh Woman, Oh Why, or Monkberry Moon Delight, which is this craze kind of thing and then he could do little lamb dragonfly right this was just very much the beginning of that but still this version it's a tremendous version of the song george is just bashing away on the guitar ringo is absolutely great on this go back and listen it's just his drum work is great i would have said you should be in this band That's all right. That's all right, Mama. Anyway, you do. 
I think we're in agreement that really this whole disc, certainly of the four that we've had so far, this disc Ringo's playing is top notch throughout. But really, you know, you could go through and, and listen to the collection of the songs and say that about any of them at certain times, because this certainly highlights uh, John's harmonica playing, playing with the band and not an overdub. Yep, this is true. That's the amazing thing. They're playing this stuff live. Absolutely. Or at most, there may be a right and a left on a two-track, but even that was pretty rare. The other thing about the version of That's All Right, Mama, Paul does a little screamy rave up. And that just amuses yeah. me. He's having so much fun. I've always felt like That's All Right, Mama is absolutely my favorite Elvis Presley record. Because there's a joy on that record, an enthusiasm, and Paul has it. I mean, he gets this song. Absolutely. Then we get some letters. Adjectives are ascribed to each of them. From Rosemary, Denise, and Maureen, dear, scrumptious Paul, cuddles Ringo, gorgeous John, and fruity George. <laughs> George. Well, that doesn't quite mean the same thing in 2022. This is when they were definitely were a boy band. <laughs> Scrumptious. Kind of funny. <laughs> right. They haven't played that many of their songs, and here we get There's a Place. Yeah, interesting that it shows up here. The EP had just come out. Right. So it was their newest song that they were promoting. Right. Even though it was on the album. live harmony work is really good yeah you listen to this disc there's no question of what an incredible live band they were and it was interesting to me because of the way history has worked out that there were so many requests for there's a place because it's kind of become this like semi-unknown rare song from the early days but here in July of 1963, it's what people wanted to hear. Right, exactly. We next get I Got a Woman. It's Duffy Power doing the cover, but he's backed by the Graham Bond Quartet. Now, the Graham Bond Quartet, on this disc, I think it included uh, Ginger Baker. And during the time the band existed, it would include both Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce. That's kind of cool that Ginger Baker was there in the studio while the Beatles were doing their thing. It's kind of funny to listen to when you consider the type of drummer that Ginger Baker became. 
to hear him play just kind of your basic 1963 pop music. Well, he's not going to play that very long. Nor is Jack Bruce. <laughs> you can tell that Duffy Power is white. Right. <laughs> he sounds very white. And I got a woman. Then the next song they do is one called Cabbage Green, just from the Gray and Bond Quartet. It's an instrumental. Is it me or is this just a 50 cent version of Green Onions? was a knockoff of green onions that was 64 65 so yes it absolutely was <laughs> it may well have been that it was just a style of vaguely soul instrumentals that were going on but it's just that it sounds a lot like green onions to me i'm kind of glad to hear that on here it's kind of cool to to hear what <laughs> was going on right that wasn't a folk trio <laughs> pop music trying to struggle out of the ooze of the early 60s. Then Rodney Burke tries to make a little joke here. Now, I've been through all the requests this week, and I couldn't find one for a carol. And I don't mean a Christmas song. So never mind, eh? And Ringo wasn't there to go, <laughs> For all the little darlings called Carol, here's the Beatles with Carol. Another very good recording. Chuck Berry, surprise. Here's one that the engineers couldn't quite get right. The sound of Ringo's cymbal wash there uh, overpowers things a little bit, I think. Yeah. You know, for a long time, I'd never listened to these songs from a fidelity standpoint. Well, because we had no fidelity. I mean, you know, they weren't bootlegs and... It was always historical and like, oh, well, that's how their version went and that sort of thing. And it's only with these recordings, which is really why we're recommending them. <laughs> well, and that's why we're going through them. I mean, you know, not just to go through for completeness sake, but because we're kind of listening to them with new ears. Lord Reith has managed to do such a good job of assembling as much as he can in the absolute best fidelity. And again, except for things like the Graham Bond Quartet or some of the introductions, everything sounds top notch. I would say it even sounds a little bit better here than it does on the official release. I would agree. The BBC recordings, the officials are good, but listening to these with a set of headphones is just pretty amazing. It's great mono. And as you say, in some instances, they sound better than the EMI recordings do. Great version of Carol. Another one where George is just killing it on the guitar. Next introduction. It's a letter from Kathy of Newport, Isle of Wight, who says, Paul's been to the Isle of Wight, and why haven't I? Well, I haven't got a passport, huh? And... <laughs> And she says, would you please sing a song for the 5th of St. Teresa Convent Ride Isle of Wight? So we'd like to feature John shouting, Soldiers of Love. <laughs> All right. The 5th of St. Teresa Convent. 
Do you think that was actually a convent, someone in a convent? I took it on face value. I don't know. I don't quite know what that means. <laughs> that there were girls studying to be nuns that were writing letters to the Beatles? Well, yeah. The Beatles were bigger than Jesus. Okay. <laughs> Not yet. That's still taking another couple of years. Well, you know, had to start somewhere. The song, which for the most part, people know off of this record. Marshall Crenshaw tells us a story about when he was in Beatlemania, he was introduced to this version of the song. He had never heard of the Arthur Alexander version, and he just started playing it. And that appeared on Marshall Crenshaw's first album, by the way. Uh, this song was co-written with Tony Moon, who was the guitar player and the, the Casuals, the band that I was in. We were the first rock and roll band in Nashville back in 1956, for mostly all born. And we, we were asked to write a song for the great Arthur Alexander. I don't know if anybody remember You Better Move On, You Better Move On. It was the first hit record to come out of Muscle Shoals. And uh, we were fortunate enough to have a record on that. And he toured England and the Beatles heard him doing that song. And lo and behold, they recorded it at the BBC on the live radio show. And later on, it came out on the album live at the BBC. So we had us a Beatles cut. It was kind of, kind of amazing. <laughs> and then Marshall Crenshaw did a nice version of the song. It's a kind of a weird song as it's never really been a hit, but a lot of people have cut it and several people know it. The original version, of course, I, I heard the original version years after I heard the Beatles version. And the Beatles really improved it. Well, Marshall Crenshaw disagrees with you. Well, okay. <laughs> I think they do a much better version of it. It's certainly a, a much more contemporary version. The Arthur Alexander original was a little bit stuck in the 50s, I think. Lay down your The other cover version that a lot of people know, Pearl Jam did it. And they do a, a really hot version of it. Use your arms for squeezing and pleasing the one who loves you so. Oh, there ain't no reason for you to declare war on the one who loves you so. So forget the other boys, cause my love is real. Come on. I guess the Beatles saved that song. Well, that's what Dave Marsh said in Rolling Stone. He, he said that if it weren't for the Beatles doing Soldier of Love, that the song very well may have been lost to history. Then back to a couple more from Duffy Power and the Graham Bond Quartet, but they've got a cover of Sar Sanding there. It's kind of a brave move. The interesting thing about that is that Paul had apparently offered it to... Duffy Power before they recorded their version of it. It probably would have been an I want to be your man type thing, but he gave it to Duffy Power in February of 63. And did he do it? He did do it. They're playing their version of their record. It didn't come out until after 
Please, Please Me came out, but he did record it. He recorded it before the Beatles recorded their version. And hmm. it sounds more or less like what he's playing here. Right. He probably heard the Beatles version. were like, you didn't tell me about that. One, two, three, five. <laughs> <laughs> It's not bad. It doesn't hold a candle to the actual version, which we'll get in a minute here. Right. It's just interesting, I find it. Followed by, again, we're talking about Ginger Baker, another derivative song called Spanish Blues. It's very much almost sort of the Besame Mucho kind of slight Spanish swing that was going around just a year before. Having it here tells you something. Then we go on to... What is now a very famous introduction. And now it's the Beatles' turn again with Lend Me Your Comb. Well, what can I say about this one? I have no comment to make at this time. With these haircuts? Sing, fellas, sing. A Carl Perkins cover. Right. Good version. A lot of fun. Maybe not their absolute best choice of song, but, you know, hey, they wanted to play a Carl Perkins song that they hadn't already played. Well, yeah, and maybe they were playing off the celebrity of their haircuts they may very well have been yes i mean that was the thing okay well yeah we'll play it all right we like the song well enough paul's having trouble with his p's and his f's there someone needed to give him a pop filter (laughs) again good recording they still didn't know what to do with ringo's Symbol wash, but, I mean, we've already established that. Then the last song for this show... Dear George, John Ringo Paul, he's hoping that you'll please us all. A beaty song and swinging voice, we'll leave it up to you, the choice. We think you're fab and really cool, so brighten up our lives at school. Dig this. It's from Chris, Denise, Heather, Sue. And it's also for Sue Richardson. As opposed to John shouting, we get... Paul whistling Clarabella. This is another weird song that may very well have been lost had the Beatles not done it. Yeah, could be. There are several songs like that. This song is not that different from Hippie Hippie Shake. You know, yeah. they're they're virtually the same song. And there are other songs with that kind of that kind of response. And so that clearly was one of the ones they liked. The original was released by the Jody Mars, which was a group that was members of Bill Haley and the Comets. Billy Preston would play a version of it in a 1965 episode of Shindig. And that's a pretty hot version. I believe it's on YouTube. You can look it up. Yeah, she needs no teacher when it comes to making love. All she needs are the stars. The other version that people would know these days, the White Stripes did a version in 2003. I haven't heard that one myself. Okay, well, your son can inform you of that, I think. Yes.
So the show ends with Rodney Burke inquiring. This was Whistling? That was Clarabella, anyway, with John Lennon on the harmonica. <laughs> Three more songs were recorded for the show, but not used and, well, probably don't exist anymore. They did Three Cool Cats, they did Sweet Little Sixteen, and they did Ask Me Why. Those three are kind of intriguing. I mean, Three Cool Cats is an old, old song for them. But it was that comedy thing that they would do. You know, they, they did a bunch of songs that were funny and usually used all three of them as vocalists. Uh, right. But- it's kind of the thing they were moving away from a little bit. And, you know, again, they may have said, well, you can have Clarabella or you could have this. And it's like, well, let's go with Clarabella. <laughs> right. Sweet Little Sixteen, Mid-Tempo, Chuck Berry. Do we need more Chuck Berry in the show? Maybe not. And then the last one, I thought, that's weird because Ask Me Why at this point seems like such an old song. But it's not that old at that point. Well, and in fact, they're going to play off of that when they talk about Love Me Do here in a little bit. As we mentioned, in between, the Beatles were usually playing two shows a night. On July the 5th, they were booked for two shows. The second of those shows was with Denny Lane and his band Denny and the Diplomats. Kind of a first meeting. That was before Denny was in Moody Blues. The note on that is that uh, because the Beatles were playing two separate live shows that evening. They were late to their second show, so Denny and the Diplomats had to extend their set. So (laughs) this was a crowd already anxious to see the Beatles. Right. Well, okay, they're still not here. We've got to play a couple more songs. Amongst (laughs) the songs they chose, Hava Nagila. Hava Nagila. Denny apparently used that as an opportunity to play guitar behind his back. Considerably easier to play Hava Nagila than (laughs) Fire. I always thought that that sort of thing didn't come around until Hendrix. I have been proven wrong on several occasions. <laughs> and then the other one that's noted is they played Take Five from the Dave Brubeck Jazz Quartet. Right. Again, wow, that's kind of unusual. <laughs> and I'm sure those kids had no clue what was going on. And let's remember the Beatles audience were young kids. Yeah, you know, they, they were fortunate in the the show was in... Denny and the Diplomats' home territory. So while they still would have preferred to have the Beatles on stage, they weren't going to out-and-out boo Denny Lane. Right. Just be impatient. (laughs) The next week, starting on July the 8th, the Beatles played a series of concerts at the Winter Gardens in Margate, Kent. Two shows each night. I think in July, most of the bookings were week-long in places. So Epstein was doing that on purpose to keep them from touring keep playing but keep them from having to run around too too much but i mean still you got them doing a show an early evening show then having to pack up and do a late show do a midnight matinee it really is like hard day's night but the reason we mention this in particular is on july the 10th not only did they have those two live shows they went down to the bbc and they recorded the next two episodes of pop go the beatles they had a very full day yeah, it had just run on adrenaline because you really look at their schedule through this year and the next. What did George say? The the Beatles gave their nervous systems. They really worked. I'm sure a lot of it was fun, but they worked constantly. It's what Ringo says at the end there, that 
they were 22, 23 years old. And, and at that age, you have the energy of an elephant. Exactly. There's all the stuff going on in the background. John and Paul are writing songs. And they're going to the studio. Yeah. So this was, you know, the 8th through the 15th of July. On the 18th was when they went in and started recording with the Beatles. So that was also going on. So before we get to that episode of Pop Go the Beatles, they did a live show on Easy Beat, recorded the 17th of July from the London Playhouse Theater and aired on the light program on Sunday, July the 21st. It was just all music, as I understand. No chat between the song. It's you know a fairly representative example of what their typical live show was like. It's recorded okay. Their performance is good, but they're not making any extra special effort. Right. They did four songs. Saw her standing there, so we follow up the Duffy Power version with a version by the Beatles. Then one which is kind of strange that they put in here, Shot of Rhythm and Blues, yet another Arthur Alexander. It's really sloppy. It's one of the few times I think that John and Paul singing together that don't really have it as matched as they often did. maybe one where they couldn't hear themselves quite so well could be because they're in front of an audience and as opposed to the last pop of the beatles where george is just so right on with the guitar even the guitar work is just ever so slightly off right he misses a note here and there it's a live set in front of an audience the sound guys weren't as good so shot of rhythm and blues was followed by there's a place george's vocal is uh, much more prominent than it usually is well i found this version had no finesse whatsoever there's a place as a pop song is forefront which is weird what saves this show from being completely average john does a really good vocal on uh, twist and shout All right one of his more raucous vocals at the end you know you got me Next is the first of those two Pop Go the Beatles recorded on July the 10th. It would be aired a couple weeks later on July the 23rd. Their guests were Carter Lewis and the Southerners. There's a group that we probably don't know much about these days. (laughs) No. I think I've heard of them, and that's about it. Yeah. Again, if it weren't for Lord Reith presenting us with at least one or two songs from these groups, we probably wouldn't have heard from most of them. (laughs) <laughs> right. I mean, I know they're all old guys now, but they're probably just like, have you heard this recording? It's got us on it and it's, we're all cleaned up. It's like the best thing. It's so much better than the real, real tape I have. So Roddy Burke is back again. All the songs they did on this show ended up on Live at the BBC. So right. it's certainly amongst EMI's favorite versions of the songs <laughs> they did at the Beeb. <laughs> Roddy Burke. And here we are again for another half hour of the 1963 sound with the Beatles. That's where the title came from, huh? Uh. They stole it from Roddy Burke. 
Wow. And John has to get in on the action. That's John Lennon, George Harrison, Paul McCartney, and Ringo Starr. And who are you, my man? I thought you'd never ask. My name's Rodney Burke. Thank you very much. It's your fault. (laughs) <laughs> they seem to have a little rapport, at least maybe a little more rapport than Rodney Burke had with the other Beatles. Then again, John would stick his nose in anywhere. <laughs> yeah. You get the feeling that maybe John is kind of ribbing him a little bit. Oh, oh, absolutely. John had a thing about the BBC guys. The show starts with Sweet Little 16, which they cut off of the last show. <laughs> Not the same version. They actually re-recorded it. John likes his Chuck. Good version of it. Yeah, it is. It's almost punk in nature in that they're playing it fast and they're playing it hard. It's certainly a Hamburg-esque performance, more so than some of the other Chuck Berry covers that they've done. We were talking about earlier in the show that John's vocal was a little bit smooth. Here, it's not. No, it's not at all. He's going all in on it. And it makes a nice contrast to the next song, uh, (laughs) Taste of Honey. A taste of honey, a taste of honey, tasting much sweeter. laying off of the syrup just a little bit it's a little bit more soulful than uh even the emi version so you like this better i don't know if i like it better but it's different i like having both of them i like the studio version of taste of honey with the uh sean connery pronunciation of sweeter than wine he plays that up here as well does he <laughs> if you listen closely he, he's, he's doing that thing He's doing it intentionally, not just because that's the way he sings the song. You can see John just giving him the eye. Do it. Do it, Paul. Come on. Tasting much sweeter. Okay, this is followed by uh, a George vocal, Roddy Burke's introduction. And here's the Beatles back again, and they reckon there's nothing shaking. Want a bet? Uh, 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 uh. Yeah, I like this song. George does a good job. Did a brief version in in Hamburg. This is a more countrified version of the song. Somewhere along the way, they decided to rearrange it a little bit. The original was from 1958, written by uh, 
Eddie Fontaine and others. There's like five people who wrote this record. And it was first released by uh, Eddie Fontaine. The country thing was clearly George's edition. And he hands up the country vocal. Yeah, there's a song that comes not too far down the way. So how come? Which is also that country lope. So they move on, and, and here's what we were talking about earlier. They're making 1962 sound like it was like forever and a day ago. Now, this one goes way back to the very first recording the Beatles ever made. I'm taking you way back now to 1962. Let me remind you of some of the events of that momentous year. Let's see, Spurs, uh, Spurs won the cup double. The summer lasted a whole weekend. And the Beatles recorded Love Me Do. <laughs> oh, but it drove like the way we talk about Love Me Do today, almost. <laughs> right. They're interested in this version, uh, you know, maybe because they hadn't been playing it every other day. Uh, it's a little bit bluesier than what they had been doing in 62 and early 63. It almost sounds like kind of a Stones pastiche, just a little bit. I can see that. It may be closer to what they were looking for as, as the original record. Because, you know, they had a big internal argument about how do you do it. They always thought Love Me Do is bluesier. And then the other notable thing about this version, Paul just attacks the Love Me Do line as the harmonica comes in. And that sounds great. <laughs> you know, the, all of the tentativeness is gone. Love Me Do. Maybe George Martin kind of said, look, you can really sing it hard now. The next song is uh, Lonesome Tears in My Eyes. This is a Dorsey Burnett number, brother of Johnny Burnett, called Lonesome Tears in My Eyes, recorded on their very first LP in 1822. <laughs> it was first released by Johnny Burnett and his rock and roll trio in December of 1956. More of Ringo's intricate drumming here. Yes. If anyone doubts Ringo's skills, listen to this version of this song. Unlike some of these other recordings, the bass is up front. The, the drums and the bass together work really well. Right. A really hot vocal. You can hear how they got from this to Ballad of John and Yoko. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, okay, we'll just lift this piece for Ballad of John and Yoko. <laughs> right. Remember how we used to play Lonesome Tears? <laughs> you know, I can just I can just see, you know, him and Paul sit in the studio. It's like, let's model it off of that. After hearing that, you could just see, you know, that George and Ringo would have gotten a kick once they heard that. It's like they would recognize where that came from. Well, and you're telling me not to do... Uh... My sweet Lord, because it sounds too much like he's so fine. Someone's going to sue you, John. Right. Morris Levy is listening. <laughs> then we, we get a Carter Lewis song, Mad Mad World. It's not a great song. Again, it's not bad. It's a little bit twee. Yes. 
<laughs> twee enough that I, I never finished it. listen to this song there's at least a decent chance that jimmy page was actually on this recording because jimmy page was in and out of the southerners at this point in time and he did play some radio shows with the southerners so that might be jimmy page okay i'm not sure i'm gonna go back and listen (laughs) to it anyway but okay unless he breaks into cashmere halfway through then we move on to the last song on this show uh Oh, George, what's, what's the name of this next one? Well, it's called So How Come Nobody, brackets, loves me, brackets. Ha-ha. This is the same to you. It's an Everly Brothers tune. An interesting way to finish your radio show. I like it, though. I mean, it's a good, solid representation of George. Early George in the Beatles. You can absolutely hear the Carl Perkins influence on the guitar. They say that everyone So we get Roddy Burke once again returning to tell us that. And once again, the clock has beaten us. Can you come back next week? No! <laughs> You'll be here. And uh, next week at the same time when the prize will stand at the Beatles. Out with Pop Go the Beatles and out with this disc with a couple of interview clips from uh, Paul and Ringo where they talk about not necessarily specifically about these shows, but more sort of general BBC talk. Right, the experience of being on the BBC. Disc 3 was a winner. Disc 4 is also a winner. Yes, and I'm most impressed on how it sounds. Disc 4, you can absolutely listen to all the way through. There's really only, what, one duplicate on the whole disc. Yeah, and there's enough variety that you could put together an album (laughs) of songs that you don't hear much. You could do your own Beatles second album. Off of what's here, yes. Uh, right. But it's amazing they were able to be so good on this kind of schedule. What we didn't mention, during the middle of when these shows were airing, they had another BBC session where they did three Pop Go the Beatles shows that, that we'll be talking about whenever we get around to disc five. All recorded in one day. 18 different songs. A longer recording session than, than the Please Please Me album session. Yeah. It's just amazing stuff that they were able to keep up now i mean the prelude and probably helped yeah maybe it was scotch and coke maybe it was you know whatever gets you through the night <laughs> all right so that's disc four we both give this a, a pretty big thumbs up i yes. think run out and get it i will advise people download it don't pay for this from the japanese because well they aren't doing anything. It's Lord Reith who did all the hard work, and he gets no money from those Japanese sets. They just download them off the internet and press them onto silver discs. This has been a public service announcement. On our way out the door, this is normally something we would have covered at the beginning, but we're covering it at the end just because Julian Lennon officially changed the order of his name. So, you know, not a big deal. Well, it was to him because he did it. Yeah. Timing is interesting. He claimed it was to do with 
things that came from the after effects of COVID and, uh, you know, travel issues. I don't know how much I completely believe that, but I have no reason to disbelieve him. Well, uh, you know, I know from personal experience that the records keeping in the modern world is such that everything has to be the same in all sorts of places, you know, plane tickets and driver's licenses and everything. It has to be exactly the same. As I had mentioned to you, my birth certificate has both of my middle names. I have two middle names spelled out, but everything subsequent to that, I've just used the initials. The only place I've ever had to use my official fully spelled out middle names was when I went to get my passport. Driver's license, they use the initials. The various pay stubs, the whole kit and caboodle, it's like, oh, we're fine with the initials. But His point was, officially, his first name is John, and that's how official papers would be read, you know? So it could be plane tickets. He would have to be John Lennon, and he didn't want to do that for various reasons. So he moved Julie into the front, basically. Yeah, and I understand that. You have one experience with that with legal documents, and I have another. So I, I'm not going to say 100% for sure that, that it has to be that way. Do you think Paul McCartney really has to go around and sign legal documents as James Paul McCartney? It's quite possible. I don't know. So very good. We will be back next week with a new show. And then, well, the week after that, is Fest Weekend, and I will be at Fest. So if you're going, come and find me. I'm going to be on at least a couple panels, and we're going to do a live-to-tape direct from the Fest with uh, Ken Womack, and it will go out the following week. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. coming under the influence of the planet Jupiter from April, which means that during the next year he will adopt a very much more moderate attitude towards the West and it will result in very much closer relationships between Britain and Russia, mm. among other things, of course. Mm. It's beneficial him for the eases world tension. And now our prophecy. And we'll be back on the air again in the light programme, 7 o'clock tomorrow evening. And with that, we end our review of the week. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.
before you all ask, the answer to the trivia question from 1963, the public house with the longest name is the old 13th Cheshire Astley Volunteer Rifleman Corps Inn. Uh, it is referred to by locals as the Rifleman, and it received a Guinness World Record for the public house with the longest name in the UK and a blue plaque from the Tameside Council in 1995. Have fun with that information.